So, uh, we'll begin. Bhagavatam. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Again, if you hear some of that noise, that's the... I didn't realize when I came here that those are the students moving into the University of San Diego for the new semester. So, we have some very interesting verses today in the Bhagavatam. Uh, Canto 1, Chapter 3, Beginning Text 8. This is the list of incarnations. We did a couple before, uh, I think two weeks ago, before Janmashtami and Vyas Puja. And uh, these avatars, these incarnations are interesting because each one exemplifies a, a whole aspect, an entire aspect of, of what Krishna does in this world, an entire aspect of Vedic culture. So uh, I'll try to explain that. Again, sorry for all the noise, but uh, I didn't realize it's moving in day at the University of San Diego. Okay, so first canto, text chapter 3, text 8 is Tritiyam, which means the third, the third incarnation. Tritiyam rishi sargam vai devarshi tvamupetya sahab tantram satvatam achasta Nice karmyam, karmanang, jataha. So this is describing Narada Muni, and it's called Rishi Sargam, the sage era, or the sage creation, in the sense, in the sense, Krishna by empowering, in that sense, incarnating as through empowerment, different personalities he is actually creating dimensions of the universe so in a sense the, the word here is rishi sargam uh which Prabhupada translates the millennium of the rishis uh literally the uh the rishi creation which i think is, is very interesting um the word sarga in sanskrit uh means creation or primary creation secondary creation so th that's kind of the, the the main way it's used as as creation so and then and then the, the, the sanskrit is very interesting here for those of you who can tolerate it um devarshi twam Devarshi, of course, means Devarishi, the uh, sage of the gods, or a god, or a divine sage, Devarshi, Narda. But here it has a suffix, Devarshi Twam, Upetya Saha, that the Lord taking on um, the status of Devarshi, or the position of Devarshi, or the state of... So, uh, and then what did Narda do? Tantram Satvatam Achashta. He taught a Satvata, which means Vaishnava, Tantra. Now, if you know anything at all about Indian history or Hinduism, Tantra, there is an evil Tantra. There is a Tantra which consists of, they actually called it the Panchamakaras. And this is much later. The Bhagavatam is talking about something very different and much earlier. 
but the later tantra uh the pancha makaras uh in sanskrit makara means the letter m ma is the letter m and so makara means the letter m and so the five m's so what were the five m's they were things like uh mytunia sex and uh i don't want to uh let's say, let's say parental guidance recommended here but um these tantric people they would they were like sort of like medieval indian hippies in the sense that they believed that you achieve freedom by breaking all the rules that if the goal is freedom then every rule is against freedom which is of course idiotic since for example if you're driving your car and you follow the traffic rules you'll actually arrive alive and you won't kill yourself or other people on the road and killing yourself or other people is not really a great example of freedom so so but this idea this sort of hippie or this uh foolish idea that freedom always comes by breaking rules and so they would engage in incest and then uh ma also stood for mangsa they would eat meat and uh madira they would drink liquor and so on i, I you know think about what the other five are so um i'm the other two so that's not the tantra we're talking about and the people who practice tantra of course were called tantricas this is a much earlier tantra which is a vaishnava tantra and is i'll explain what it is first of all the word tantra comes from the sanskrit verb tan which means to expand and or to extend so we find this word used in the past tense in the first bhagavatam verse in the phrase tene brahma rida the lord expanded or extended vedic knowledge into unto brahma so that's the word tan so tantra means that which extends or expands and so it's a body of literature which expands or extends or elaborates upon the vedas as we know from brahma sanghita vedeshu durlabham it is hard to find krishna in the vedas if you read the rig veda and the yajur veda and you're looking for krishna good luck and you'll find something about vishnu even some very significant statements about vishnu but um you won't find krishna and krishna talks about this of course in the bhagavad gita when he's saying how veda vadarata partha nanya those who are who simply take pleasure in reciting the vedas they're generally materialistic and they want material rewards krishna also talks about this karma kanda vedas chapter 9 when he says um trividya somapa putapapa swargatin pratyante which means trividya those who study the three books of knowledge trividya so those who study it are the trividyas and of course that refers to the rigveda samaveda and yajurveda tarvaveda kind of has some voodoo in it so a lot of times they don't mention it but um and then krishna says swargatim pratyante they aspire to uh to reaching heaven literally they aspire to reach heaven swargatim pratyante te punyam asadya surender lokam and so approaching 
uh, Indraloka, Surendraloka, the planet of Indra, and enjoying there for some time, Shine Punye, when their piety is exhausted, there's when their sort of their credit card runs out, their, their Punya credit card runs out, Chine Punye Swargatim, um, Chine Punye Martya Lokam Bishanti, they come back to the, the mortal worlds. I mean, every planet in this universe is mortal, but death is so prominent in this world that it's called Martya Loka, and life is so short. So Krishna says, Evam Chai, Evam Chai, what is that? Anu Prapanagatagati, thus having uh, taken shelter of the Karmakanda Vedas. All they get is a round trip, gatagatam, going and coming. Evam trai dharmam, that's what, anuprapanna. They surrendered to, they resorted to, took shelter of the um, the dharma or the duties of uh, the three Vedas, and they just go to heaven, come back, and achieve absolutely nothing. So, I mean, there are parts of the Vedas that are more serious philosophically, such as the Upanishads. But even the Upanishads, although the Upanishads are, especially some of them, like you could say the Shvetashvatara, which actually literally means the white mule Upanishad. There's a lot of really funny things in Sanskrit. It's like better than Marvel comics. So it's, um, so the Shvetashvatara Upanishad means the white mule Upanishad for some reason. And, um, and other Upanishads. So um, they're more philosophical, but still they're somewhat esoteric. And they kind of tell you, but don't exactly tell you. And uh, it's not a clear, explicit Krishna consciousness. And therefore the Brahma Sahita concludes, it's hard to find Krishna in the Vedas. Therefore there's a need to expand the meaning. There's a need to clear all this up. And of course, this was done in two ways. And perhaps the most important way, it was cleared up by Vyastev by composing Srimad Bhagavatam. And so that was one way to clear up all this esoteric cloud, you could say. Um, and then the second way that it was all cleared up historically was through Narada Muni, teaching uh, Tantra literature such as Narada Pancharatra. So when it says here, Tantram Satvatam, that he taught, oh my God, I'm outdoors, so you can see with my shades on, oh well. Not the worst thing could happen, I suppose. So, um, so Narada Muni taught this Vaishnava Tantra, and it's in that Tantra that we find things like deity worship, or the, the expansions of Krishna, such as the Chaturvyuha, Vasudev and uh, Pradyumna, Sankarshanani Ruta. So this whole notion that the Lord expands in different plenary forms, the idea of a, of a spiritual world, like really explaining much more in detail the spiritual world, deity worship, all these things which are really central to our Gaudiya Vaishnava culture, in fact, do not come technically from the Vedas. Uh, they come from uh, the Tantra literature. And Narada Muni is the original Acharya of that literature. Now the Bhagavatam is a hybrid work. 
Rupa Go, uh, Jiva Goswami. Jiva Goswami wrote a uh, course of Shatsandarva, the six Sandarvas, and among those is Tattva Sandarva, which is, means the knowledge Sandarva. And uh, it's really the most important work in our tradition uh, about epistemology, like what are valid sources of knowledge? Under what conditions are you justified in saying that you know something? It's not merely your opinion or your feeling. And so uh, Jiva Goswami also says that the most important source is the Bhagavatam. And so the Bhagavatam actually gives us both. The Bhagavatam gives us Vedic knowledge, for example, in, in the second canto, uh, there's a chapter which Prabhupada calls uh, Purusha Sukta Explained because it's the there's it's one of the maybe chapter eight or one of those around there. And the second canto is actually a running commentary on the Rig Veda, on the tenth book of the Rig Veda about the Purusha Sukta. So so the Bhagavatam gives us lots of Vedic stuff. I mean, people are doing fire sacrifices all over the place in the Bhagavatam. And uh, they're performing Upanishadic meditations and yoga practice. So there's a lot of Vedic stuff in the Bhagavatam. On the other hand, there's a lot of Tantra stuff. The different expansions of Krishna, the spiritual world, as mentioned, third canto of Aikunta. It's just water. Don't believe the rumors. So, and, uh, and deity worship. It's not described a lot, but there's reference to that. The, and, and for example, all those meditations on the Narayan form of the Lord, holding different objects, and that's all Tantra stuff. So the first incarnation, not the first, but I think the third incarnation mentioned here is Narada Muni, uh, who introduced this whole dimension of knowledge, this, this whole uh, world of knowledge. And it's important that the Bhagavatam says that uh, you really need both. The Bhagavatam actually says that uh, to understand things fully, you need, and, and it calls it Vaidika and Tantrika. Now, one interesting point is that the word Vedic is actually used in the Bhagavatam the way Western scholars use it, rather than the way that it's used in ISKCON. So that <clears throat> Western scholars and the Bhagavatam actually use the word Vedic, Vaidik, Vaidika in Sanskrit, to mean specifically the Shruti literature. And and Vaidika, Vedic, is contrasted with uh, Tantrika, which is this other body of literature, also necessary, also divine revealed literature necessary to understand Krishna. So we can, I mean, we can use the word Vedic in the way we do, Prabhupada used it that way. Uh, but you may want to just be aware when you're out there trying to explain what we do to people that uh, scholars and the Bhagavatam actually use the word Vedic to mean the Shruti literature. So that is verse 8. And the last line of this verse is nice karmyam karmanam jataha. That through this uh, Tantra literature, uh, one achieves nice karmya through karma which is very because nice karmya of course just comes from the word nice karma which means without karma so by practicing no karma you become free of karma or no i'm sorry it says it's it, it says that through karma 
you get free of karma. And what that means is by action. The word karma, may I say a word about that, has various meanings. Uh, the root of the word karma is simply action. The word karma does not, in its most fundamental sense, mean material activities or the laws of karma. And to give an example how the word is used in a neutral sense to simply mean action, Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, Janma karma cha me divyam. One who understands in truth my divine uh, birth and action. And he uses the word karma. So Krishna's activities are also karma in the root sense of action. It takes on a further meaning because most of the actions, almost all the actions we experience are material actions. We're in the material world. If you didn't notice, look around, you will see that you are definitely in the material world. Unless you're in a Hare Krishna temple, I guess, right now. Anyway, so this verse says that through karma, in other words, by acting in this world, one achieves freedom from karma. And that's the point Krishna emphasizes in the Gita, that you cannot reach a karma, which is the same as niche karma. You can't achieve that by giving up karma. Krishna explains that, that the common sense conclusion would be wrong. That, okay, I want to be free of karma, so don't do karma. And that's the whole point of the Gita. Krishna say no. You know, nice try, but I can't. I guess I can't say no cigar in a Bhagavatam class. But anyway, Krishna says no. You can't just give up karma and become free of karma. The reason being that you can't really give up karma because you're active by nature. You are going to do something. Even if you try to give up karma, that's an action. It takes an exertion of will. You've got to really hold on. You know, and, and so even trying to give up karma is a karma, is an action. And therefore, uh, the real way to become free of karma is by offering it to Krishna, by offering your actions to Krishna. So this whole technique where you don't go off into the forest as in the Upanishads and just meditate, or theologize, or you don't just stay in the towns and perform all kinds of elaborate rituals as in the four Vedas, but you do something else. You do bhakti yoga and you're active, but you become free of karma. So that's that verse. Uh, then the next verse, nine, is Turiye, which means in the fourth incarnation. Turiya means a fourth. Turiya dharma kala sarge in the creation of the expansion of dharma. Naranarayana rishi, the two sages, Naranarayana. Bhutva, appearing in this world. Atmopa shamopetam akaro duscharang tapaha. They performed tapas, austerity, which is hard to do. They perform very difficult austerities. And these austerities entailed atmo pashama, uh, which means calming the self. Calming the self, uh, becoming free of all material agitation. Students are coming, watch out. They look nonviolent. So, um, Because we're agitated in this world. That's the whole point. I mean, we're by so many things. We are, there's sex desire for those who are a certain age and over. 
Uh, there's hunger, there's thirst, we get angry sometimes. Uh-oh, bad news are stopping here. We have to send Krishna. Gonna remove them. Anyway, so you I mean there's so much agitation in this world. We become angry, we become disturbed, disappointed, excited about things, frustrated, sad. There's just all kinds of uh, there's all kinds of frustration and disturbance. But Narayan showed how to become free from all this, and they practice celibacy. Oh well, I, I hope you can still hear me. There is, I'll get a little closer here. And so Narayan taught. Uh, this may not be working. I'll tell you what. Maybe I will move, and uh, we will go back on the air. And it's about three minutes. So if you can hang in there, don't go away, and I'll be right back. So, uh, we're back. Um, so let's continue. So in this uh, fourth incarnation of Krishna Turiya in the fourth Dharma Kalasarga in the creation of a portion of Kala, Naranarayana, and uh, celibacy. So just as the incarnation of Narada illustrated that whole dimension of Vedic culture, which is the Tantra literature, which is so important in our philosophy. And so here, Nara Narayan are introducing another important aspect of spiritual life and Vedic culture, which is controlling our lust, controlling, because there are basically these two, you could say psychological vectors or motions or directions. One is trying to enjoy and exploit, and the other is trying to serve and love. And so uh, celibacy is sort of a radical form of not self-denial, but it's actually self-affirmation. But it's um, of denying the lower self, denying the selfish part of us, of us. And of course, as we know, too much austerity is not a good thing. It actually makes spiritual life impossible. Uh, too much, uh, Krishna says in the Gita, he says, Yukta biharasya jukta. Uh, that we have to be moderate in dealing with all of our human needs and bodily needs. There has to be moderation. Uh, and But of course, if someone is able, if someone has that special gift or is spiritually advanced and can practice strict celibacy, that's a very positive, uh, powerful affirmation of one's spiritual identity and saying that I'm not the selfish part of me. Of course, according to Bhagavad Gita, just fulfilling your basic needs, eating, sleeping, for most people, some form of contact with the opposite sex, um, and so on. Recreation, thats it's not necessarily gross selfishness, but it is a concession to the fact that we have a material body. So, um, but that whole idea, the whole notion that there is value in denying selfishness, that there is value in trying not to exploit the world, including our own body, but there is value in affirming one's own spiritual identity and affirming, and that identity is a soul that wants to, to love and to serve and to give real happiness to others rather than try to 
exploit the world for oneself. So that is a very central, it's a, it's a very fundamental truth about spiritual life and Krishna consciousness. And one aspect of it, one option for some people is strict celibacy. And uh, that was introduced by Narayan Rishi. So that incarnation also introduced something important in, in Krishna conscious culture. So Panchama, the fifth. Kapila Nama was named Kapila and Siddhesha. He was the Lord of perfected beings. And uh, Kala Viplutam Provacha Surya Sankhyam, that uh, Sankhya philosophy had been lost over time. And he again spoke it. He actually spoke it to his mother. Interestingly, his convert, famous conversation with his mother, teaching her Sankhya in the third canto of the Bhagavatam, is not mentioned here. Rather, it said that he taught it to Asuri. He obviously taught it to many people. Tattvagrama vinirnayam. And so Sankhya is also important because it's a whole way of understanding the material world and ultimately uh, the soul. So Sankhya, it, Sankhya, the word Sankhya comes from the word Sankhya. Kya means to narrate or explain. Uh, kya means to explain or recount, and sung means completely. So anyway, to make a long story short, the word sankhya means a number, or it's the verb to enumerate. And so sankhya, from the word sankhya, literally means enumerating how many fundamental real things there are in the world. And this is very important because, for example, is they're a separate real thing, which is a soul, or is what we call the soul just a combination of material elements, uh, fundamental particles or fundamental elements. So, or is there a real thing, which is God, or is that just part of our psychology? So if you think about it, figuring out what fundamental real things exist in the world is important and the name for a fundamental real thing in sanskrit is tattva we often translate tattva as truth it actually means a fundamental real thing and so in sankhya philosophy of tattva drama meaning or explaining uh the fundamental real things that exist. And uh, so that whole approach, which of course, obviously uh, includes science, because science is trying to figure out what are the ultimate fundamental real things. That, you know, at one point they thought atoms are fundamental, but then it turns out they're not because atoms are made up of a bunch of other things, such as protons, neutrons, electrons, and God knows what else. And so, uh, or, and that's a big debate right now. Can consciousness be reduced to material elements? Or is consciousness a separate, fundamental, real thing? Which, of course, we know it is. But that topic is coming up a lot now in science and philosophy in the modern world. And so, uh, apart from the Sankhya taught by Lord Kapila, which is, of course, the ultimate truth of things, 
uh, it's a whole methodology. It's a way of trying to understand reality, which is still used today constantly by philosophers, by scientists, and so on. So that whole approach, trying to understand what are the fundamental real things that was originally introduced by Lord Kapila. Who's the fifth incarnation? Do we have time for one more? Uh, I think maybe we'll do that one next time. I think you basically got your money's worth. I mean, after all, how much electricity did it really cost you for this class? So uh, let me take a look very quickly to see if there are any questions. Again, if you ask a question, please. Oh, okay. Someone actually did put a lot of question marks. So very good. Charita. Thank you for the class. Given what you have said about Krishna and the Vedas, Bhagavad Gita statements about the Vedas, Krishna and the Rig Veda, Vaishnava theology and the Vedas, etc., can we say that our movement unnecessarily overemphasizes the Vedas and related concepts such as Vedic culture and Vedic philosophy, something which from the academic standpoint simply does not exist? Well, no controversy there. But of course, I started it, right? Because I started this whole Krishna lesson. <laughs> what is Vedic? So I deserve that question. Um, well, take a wild guess of what I think. Uh, yeah, I do think that often the Hare Krishna movement extremely overemphasizes uh and, and, and often incorrectly emphasizes that certain things are Vedic. Um, it's very interesting because I mentioned earlier how the Bhagavatam uses the word Vedic, and there, I mean, the word Vedic is, is a practically Sanskrit. I mean, Sanskrit is Vedic. Vedic. Uh, Vedika, the Bhagavatam uses the word to mean Tantra, which I've explained already. The Chaitanya Charitamrita uses the word Vedic, and it uses the word Vedic, I mean, Bengali, Sanskrit, uh, Vedic, and even in a more limited way. In the Chaitanya Charitamrita, the word Vedic is used almost, ex I think, exclusively, or almost exclusively in one little phrase, which is uh, compound Vedika Brahmana, the Vedic Brahmana. That's how the word Vedic is used in the CC. You know, don't trust me. Look it up in database, and um, and what and what Vaidik Brahmana or Vedic Brahmana means in the CC is a Karmakanda person. So again, the Chaitanya Charitamrita uses the word Vedic always practically to mean Karmakanda, the Vedas which deal with uh, material advancement through sacred rituals. And so what's interesting is that both in the Bhagavatam and the CC, the word Vedic is not used in the same way we use it. It doesn't mean that our use is wrong. It doesn't mean we can't use it that way. But I think we just have to pay attention to what we're doing. So the notion that all kinds of things are Vedic or part of this great culture, uh, including all kinds of external culture, is... Um, very questionable. There is such a thing, I mean, you can speak correctly about a Vedic civilization, 
for example, Varnashram. Varnashram is completely Vedic. It's all over the Vedas, Varnashram. So the idea for Varnas and for Ashrams, yes, absolutely Vedic. And ultimately, Krishna says that Vedaisya Sarvaya Rahamiva Vedya, which is very interesting, by all the Vedas, I alone am to be known. Like the only point really to be understood in all the Vedas is me. That's what Krishna says. But then the Brahma Sanghita says, it's, it's hard to find Krishna in the Vedas. And so we have to put these two statements together, one from the Brahma Sanghita, which Lord Chaitanya uh, personally uh, restored to, uh, to our knowledge and, and, and brought back with him from South India. And then Krishna's statement that by all the Vedas he is to be known. And that itself is a very interesting topic. How do we integrate these two statements, which are both true? Uh, it is hard to know Krishna the Vedas. I've explained that already. And there is a sense, a very clear sense, in which ultimately all the Vedas, and by here the word Veda means knowledge. And so you can take Veda here, Vedais Chasarvaya, which is Bhagavad Gita 1515, you can take that not merely in a limited sense that a particular body of Sanskrit literature. Prabhupada himself, in the discussion of Joan of Arc, said that uh, Veda can mean more than that because it, it basically all books of knowledge, any book which gives real knowledge is, is Veda in that sense because Veda means knowledge. It also means a specific set of Sanskrit books. So in a sense, what Krishna is saying is by all knowledge, by all manifestations of knowledge, by learning anything, ultimately the purpose is to, to understand Krishna. Because all knowledge culminates in Krishna. So, um, so it is an interesting topic. And maybe I'll leave it at that before I get into more trouble than I'm probably already in. Let's see if there's any, oh, here's a question. Uh, with so many negative qualities that are self-evidently manifested in the age of Kali, how can one attain equilibrium as prescribed or advised in the Gita? Uh, join the Hare Krishna movement and practice bhakti yoga. That's really what we can do. Question. Can we call devotional service as karma? Or what is the difference between action and Krishna consciousness, karma and devotional service, or it's the same thing? Oh, old friend Bhakti. Yeah, so, um, yeah, the word karma has different meanings. So if we use karma in the sense of just action, any action is karma, then Bhakti Yoga is karma. Krishna himself says, speaks about his karma, his divine karma. He obviously doesn't mean that, you know, he has karma in the sense that he's getting reactions. He means my divine action. So if we use the word in the sense that Krishna uses, I think it's Gita 4.6, then yes, we can talk about bhakti yoga as karma. And of course there's karma yoga. The difference between karma yoga and bhakti yoga, for a few, pay a slight additional fee, I'll explain that. Actually, if, if you look at Prabhupada's Gita, 
it's clear that Prabhupada is using the terms karma yoga and bhakti yoga sometimes synonymously or almost interchangeably and yet there is a difference. The difference is that when your life is really focused on your own propensities like you're an artist or you are a the uh, business person or a musician or whatever you know banker whatever so that's really kind of what you do but you offer it to krishna you want to do it in a spirit of devotion and so you're basically pursuing your career you're absorbed in your career your family but you offer it to krishna so that's karma yoga bhakti yoga has this sense where what you're really interested in is krishna so you may so a karma yogi and a bhakti yogi can be the same person at one stage where a person's really into their career or their family i mean i'm not saying we should abandon our families when we come to the stage of bhakti but in in a you could say in a in a somewhat mundane sense and we know what that means we're adults so but if someone is really into their human life so to speak but they have enough knowledge and sincerity to ultimately want to offer to Krishna some way that's karma yoga but when your attachment to Krishna uh, becomes stronger so that really what you care about is serving Krishna but you still have duties you still have a job you still have family duties which as we know are not always so spiritual because you have children often and that's used often husbands and wives produce children and uh, the children don't always they're not always pure devotees you know they're not they don't always take up spiritual life and yet they're your children and you have to take care of them sometimes your spouse is not you know I don't know God's gift to Krishna consciousness and so if you have a spouse or if you have children who are not really into Krishna consciousness very strongly which as we know happens sometimes you st it's still your family you still have to take care of them Prabhupada did that and so inevitably even if you if your real love is Krishna you have to perform all kinds of duties and so the more direct service to Krishna becomes your desire and just what you're able to do in life the more it becomes bhakti yoga but it's really kind of a, a continuum it's really kind of a continuum where you just the emphasis is more and more on Krishna okay from Memphis do we create karma doing devotional service absolutely not if not why not because Krishna doesn't want to give you karma I mean why does Krishna give you karma at all after all the only that's what the Brahma Sanita says uh, karma uh, that um, just to Indra, to, just to Indra Gopam at the Vendra Mahosa Karma Bandhanu Rupa Fala Vajana Atanoti. Very interesting. This literally means that Krishna extends or Krishna imposes the acceptance of the fruit of your karma on everyone from. It's very interesting. Just Twendra Gopa Matavendra. Whether you're just a little insect or just some tiny little creature, like which is called Indra Gopa, some little worm or insect or something, or all the way up to Indra. So from Indra Gopa, which is a pretty low birth, all the way up to Indra, whoever you are, you're going to get your karma. And of course, in the case of a worm, it's karma from a past conscious life, more more conscious life. But still, 
Krishna imposes karma on everyone. And he imposes karma because you're not performing the duty of a soul. The duty of a soul is to serve Krishna. That's Sanatana Dharma. So if I'm, if I'm not doing that, I get a reaction. I'm learning. It's, you know, I'm, Krishna's teaching me. But if I am serving Krishna, then he does not give us karma because we're doing the right thing. Uh, how can we practice bhakti while still living, quote-unquote, normal lives in a Western context? Do we have to reject Western literature, the arts, etc.? if we want to take devotional service seriously. Uh, no, you don't. I mean, obviously, it's just like, anyway. Um, the first letter I ever wrote to Prabhupada was in 1969, when I, September, about 50 years ago. I wrote a letter, I just joined the Berkeley Temple. I was 20-year-old brahmachari. Uh, and I wrote Prabhupada a letter asking him if I should stay in school at Berkeley or drop out and just do service. And Prabhupada told me to stay in school because he said that I needed to have a good education in order to preach Krishna consciousness to educated people. Prabhupada did not tell me, just read my books. I think he did tell some people that, but Prabhupada maybe saw that different people had different inclinations. But Prabhupada told me that I should get a good education, which means reading all those books, in order to be able to preach effectively to educated people. And apart from that, um, well, that's a big deal. As far as the arts, I think we have a lot to learn about art. For example, uh, when Prabhupada wanted the devotees to develop dioramas, which was a project kind of annihilated by the digital age, because now you do everything digitally. But um, he sent all these top artists like Bharadraj and others, uh, I think Merlindar, to Mayapur, to West Bengal, to learn from diorama gurus. and. They weren't devotees, they just knew how to make dioramas. And so we, we, we have to learn if we want to produce art, you know, either musical arts or visual arts or literary arts. As I just finished a novel, which I hope you all read and, you know, I hope you all buy at least 108 copies, if not 1,080, which is better, or 10,800. But anyway, so in order to learn how to write a good modern novel, I had to study that. I had to read, well, I can't stand 21st and 20th century novels. I mean, 99% of them I just don't like it. I studied 19th century novels when the world was a little more decent, sane in some ways. So um, I had to study to learn the art. Another thing is that I found that my ability to understand the Hare Krishna movement where are we going? Where are we not going? What's going to work? What's not going to work? My understanding of that has been dramatically, radically enhanced by studying history, history of religions, uh, sociology of religion. It has given me extraordinary insights. Of course, some people will say deviations. 
but I'm pretty sure I can uh, prove my points logically. So I don't think I could really, I mean, when I say understand ISKCON, I didn't learn that Krishna is God by studying these other things or that I'm not my body, but I did learn an awful lot about organized religion and where it comes from and where it's going, what works, what doesn't work, how the public's going to perceive us. So, <clears throat> yeah, so I think in many, many, for many reasons, being able to speak the language of intelligent people, being able to understand the Hare Krishna movement in a rational, history-based way, developing various arts. It, for, I mean, for many, many reasons, education could be good if you're cut out for it. If it's just not your thing, then you don't have to do it. Um, let's see, what else? We actually got questions today. You must have all had a good breakfast. Um, being karma, the law of action and reaction, and while serving Krishna, devotees performing bhakti yoga, therefore freeing oneself, herself actually it says, from karma. How would you explain the reactions a devotee suffers during deity worship for committing offenses, say, during puja? Would you please talk a little about this? Thank you. Sure. Um, to say that a devotee doesn't get karma doesn't mean you don't get reactions. Those are two different words. Karma is just one kind of reaction. There are other kinds of reactions, like where Krishna just, you know, gives you a reaction, like, what the hell are you doing? So, yeah, so to say you're free of karma doesn't mean you're free of reactions. Karma is just one kind of reaction. You are, Krishna says in the Gita twice that he's the father of all of us. Arjuna says it once. And um, so that's what parents do. They train their children, you know. What all the uh, science shows is that children need two things from parents. They need love and they need discipline. If they get love and not discipline, they actually don't feel loved. And they can just turn out really bad. If they get disciplined and they're not loved, that's obviously a problem. So love and discipline, and that's what Krishna gives us. So what we call reactions are really just a loving parent teaching us. So this is in Spanish, I'll translate it. In the spiritual world, we are, we go from one form to another to interact with Krishna systematically or no. No, I mean, we have a relationship with Krishna, our rasa with Krishna, our what's also called Siddha Sarupa, our perfected constitutional form. And that's just who we are. Some people are worried, like, well, I get stuck. What if I go to the spiritual world and I'm a, like, I'm a mango tree? And that's all I do for all eternity is I just put out mangoes. And people, or what if I'm a, you know, like a Vicunta lizard or something? So, you know, devotees have these fears, like, what if I get stuck forever? The, the, um, the good news here is that you will not get stuck forever in a spiritual body you don't want. Technically not in a spiritual body, and here's the point, you are the spiritual body. In this world, we are not your body. We are not our bodies. You can't go to Krishna Loka and go around telling people you're not your body, because actually they are their bodies. And so, the particular form you have with in in krishna loka it's just who you are no one's forcing you it's, it's not that you go there and they give you a little ticket and then you, you know a little envelope you open oh my god i'm a squirrel how did this happen 
it's it's not like that I'm a cow. I don't want to be. I respect cows. I love cows. I don't want to be a cow. Not even a surabi cow. So it's not like that. It's not like you go up there and they just assign you like to a dormitory room in a college. You know, it's it's not like that. When you go to the spiritual world, you just become who you really are. That's just who you are and that's who you want to be and that's it's just you. It's not that someone else is deciding your rasa. It's not that someone else is, you know, forcing you to be a spiritual body you're not really into. It's not like that. Spiritual world, complete freedom and you will manifest in the spiritual world as who you really are and who you really want to be so don't worry about that don't worry like are there refunds in the spiritual world like if i go to the spiritual world and i got this spiritual body i can't stand can i like cash in all my bhakti for maybe trillions of quadrillions of years on a heavenly planet or something you know refunds so yeah, don't worry. You'll be very happy indeed. You'll be another satisfied customer in the spiritual world. So thank you all very much. Thank you for listening. And uh, hope to see you next Sunday. Goodbye from the University of San Diego. Hare Krishna.